It may be the most pressing question facing the world at this perilous moment. Is Vladimir Putin bluffing or not when he threatens to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Nuclear weapons analyst Joe Cirincione says we need to take the Russian president seriously. We should believe Putin that this is not a bluff, he writes in a recent op-ed in the Washington Post. In fact, Cirincione points out, Russian military doctrine has been transformed under Putin's leadership. Where once it called for the use of nukes only when the very existence of the Russian Federation was under threat, it now contemplates their use in response to, quote, large-scale aggression utilizing conventional weapons in situations critical to the national security. A big difference, to say the least, and one more alarming now than ever, given that Putin has declared the eastern regions of Ukraine sovereign Russian territory. What might a Russian nuclear attack in Ukraine look like? And what would and should be the United States and NATO's response? We'll talk to Serencioni and game out the ever more frightening possibilities on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And Victoria Bassetti cannot be with us today. Uh, she will return, hopefully, very soon. Um, but right now, I got to say, it's pretty hard to be at all dismissive about what Putin has been saying or doing uh, with this annexation of uh, the eastern regions of Ukraine. There's something called the Doomsday Clock, which is uh, the Bureau of American of Atomic Scientists have been using this for years to sort of tell us how close we are to the extinction of the world, either a nuclear catastrophe or some other catastrophic event. And uh, somebody, uh, I just double checked this, it was put on Twitter the other day. The doomsday clock now reads at 100 seconds to midnight. That's one minute and 40 seconds. By comparison, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it read seven minutes to midnight. I don't know if that's right, but uh, even the idea of it is pretty scary on its face. Yeah. And it's shaken some, you know, very sober-minded, careful people like the guest that we're about to talk to, uh, Joe uh, Serancioni, who is a nuclear policy expert and has been thinking and studying these issues uh, for uh, for a very long time. And he's pretty spooked. Um, I think you had a recent encounter with uh, Serancioni just a little yeah. while ago where he didn't think that we were getting close to uh, doomsday and his calcul- his perceptions have changed. Uh, yeah, they were. This was just a couple of weeks ago at uh, at uh, David Korn's book party, and we ran into each other and we're chatting. And you know, I brought up this issue, and uh, at that time, he did not think that the possibilities were all that great that uh, Putin was going to go nuclear. But we've had two weeks now of a pretty steady drumbeat of nuclear threats from the Russians, and not just Putin himself, but um, uh, people like. Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president, who's now, I think, deputy 
deputy chairman of the national, Russian National Security Council, has repeatedly been talking about the use of nuclear weapons. Of course, uh, Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, spouts off about them, uh, you know, almost every day now. And just the idea that, you know, senior Russian officials are talking this way is so mind boggling on its face. I mean, I got to say, I do remember when I was a little kid, you know, the sirens would go off at school every now and then, and we'd all have to like uh, huddle under our desk, duck and cover, duck duck and cover to protect ourselves from a uh, thermonuclear explosion. I was never quite sure how being under my desk was going to protect me (laughs) from a nuclear bomb. But I will say I have in uh, recent days cleared off the bottom of my desk here uh, in Washington, D.C., so I'll have some place to hide. The thing about the then and now, the, the height of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the thing that was different, as scary as it was, is we were talking about kind of rival systems, right? I mean, the Soviet Union and the Soviet leader at the time, uh, Khrushchev, was part of a a system of, of government in the Soviet Union where there were checks and balances. There was a kind of discipline in how they ran their affairs. And, and of course, you know, we had a, a very different one here, but also it was a system. The difference now is that Russia is really controlled by one man, by Vladimir Putin. And he's a guy who we think of as being, or we did anyway, of being rational and highly disciplined. But the other thing is, you know, when you get into these cycles of escalation and then efforts to de-escalate, the critical human uh, element here is, can people save face? Can they kind of climb down from the tree and, and find some way to save face? I have never seen Vladimir Putin climb down at all. He's never really done that as far, as far as I know. So if you think about who's actually making these decisions, and in the case of Russia, it's it's Vladimir Putin, that's unsettling and different from the way it was during the Cold War. You know, and your point about, you know, back during the uh, uh, Cold War days, there were there was a form of checks and balances. Let's remember the pol- the, the Soviet Politburo kicked Khrushchev out in 1964. I mean, there was a leadership structure that could rein in and even evict, depose the Soviet leader. It's not at all clear that there's anything like that today. In fact, I think it's pretty clear there isn't, that this is a one-man show by Putin. And that makes it even more alarming and scary, because is there anybody who could tell him, hey, Vlad, I don't think we should go there. Uh, this is going to be too risky. And you know, this is a point we'll take up with Joe, but you know, we've been warning Putin now for some time, ever since this war started, about the uh, uh, what Jake Sullivan calls the catastrophic consequences of the Russians using nukes. And it obviously has not led to Putin backing down at all. And I think, you know, he's he's sort of off on this rhetorical ledge right now. And it's it's really hard to see how that how he comes back off of that absent something truly catastrophic. Yeah. We used to talk about the crazy man theory of world politics. Uh, you, you want uh, your rivals to think that we might do something crazy. I think that 
George W. Bush maybe subscribed to that theory, and there was talk but about Richard Trump. Nixon did Richard uh, Richard certainly. Nixon exactly Kissinger sort of started to, with used Nixon to use that line with his you know when he talked to the Soviets saying hey you know we've got I've got this crazy man who might do something really crazy <laughs> yeah and and you know when you're engaged in a game of chicken actually Tom Friedman the New York Times columnist had an interesting metaphor which is you know two cars driving you know at high speeds right right toward each other in this kind of game of chicken and what you want to do is convince the other side that you're not going to swerve the best way to do that is to actually tell them well you've removed the steering wheel so you can't <laughs> swerve yeah. but that's not really Joe Biden and Beyond that, it may not be the best way to proceed in a situation well, like this. Well, you know, look, uh, Trump has, you know, a true crazy man has said this <laughs> never would have happened if I had been in office. And, uh, I don't, I'm not sure we want to test that. <laughs> but, yeah. So an important discussion. Uh, obviously, there are other things going on uh, in the world right now, including a, um, a new uh, Supreme Court session about to start, which could yeah, be yeah. pretty uh, the, consequential. The new term starts uh, uh, Today, I think the first arguments are tomorrow as we're recording this podcast on Monday, so on Tuesday, and that is uh, an an important voting rights case uh, out of Alabama where the, uh, the state of Alabama, after the census, redistricted the state and created seven districts, only one of which is predominantly black, even though I think Alabama's black population is 27%. That was challenged under uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights uh, Act. And actually, my understanding is that challenge was actually uh, accepted by uh, a, uh, the, uh, a panel, an appeals court panel down there. Two of the judges are Trump-appointed judges. Well, you may have a point here, but the Supreme Court intervened, and they're now going to take this up. And and you know, I think what we're going to see in this in this new term is a lot of six-three decisions once again. Um, and there's one other really big uh, six-three decisions where the conservatives obviously are in the majority. And there's one other really big decision, and that is the affirmative action decision in education out of Harvard and. Uh, uh, University of North Carolina. And so that could uh, completely, you know, eradicate race-based um, admissions in um, at the university level and, and have a huge impact in terms of uh, affirmative action more generally. So we are going to uh, be addressing these issues uh, at the end of the week when we have uh, our friend Dahlia Lithwick, the terrific uh, Supreme Court reporter and analyst for Slate on the podcast. And uh, Dahlia's got a new book out called Lady Justice, about kind of pioneering uh, women of the law who've had a huge impact on the American law. So that'll be a great conversation. We'll talk more yeah, generally about- good timing about- with, the, uh, with the start of the new Supreme Court yep, term absolutely. coming up. I, I, just one more, uh, just a data point on that. Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, some weeks ago, said the Supreme Court's report on the leak of the Dobbs decision- had been uh, finished and he expect or he hoped it was going to be released soon. I wonder if this week, the start of the term, might be the the time that the Supreme Court might drop that. Obviously, it will be of uh, great interest all across the board. Yeah. I read about that. And and the thought that popped into my mind is, does John Roberts, the Chief Justice, who seems to really care deeply about maintaining the you know sort of institutional respect for the court and keeping it out of politics, uh, does he even want that 
to come out because that's clearly going to reignite all of yeah. the partisan battles uh, over over the co- court and once again make it look like a political arm when it's uh, of the government when it's not supposed to be so it's going to be interesting to a see lot will depend on um, who the leaker was and um, which side of the ideological divide that person sits on uh, you know obviously it would be of interest to the other side to get the report out i mean if it was a conservative clerk or somebody affiliated with one of the conservative justices, the theory would be, you know, the liberals have argued, you know, that's the most likely scenario because they were trying to freeze the opinion so Gorsuch or Roberts wouldn't defect. Of course, the others, you know, the conservatives have argued, you know, Oxum's razor uh, was some liberal clerk who was outraged about uh, Alito's opinion, uh, draft opinion. But either way, I mean, it's going to set off a political brawl uh, over the court, you know, and there's just a, a recent, I think, Gallup poll about the court that shows that its reputation has sunk to even lower levels and um, not a great thing. All right. Well, anyway, um, we will be talking about that and much else with Dahlia Lithwick later in the week. But right now we've got a great guest to talk about what is truly the most alarming question on the world stage right now. So let's get to it. All right. We now have with us Joe Cirincione, nuclear weapons analyst, author of the book Nuclear Nightmares. Joe, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be back. So a couple of weeks ago at uh, David Korn's book party, we were chatting about the threat of nuclear war in Ukraine. Uh, At that point, you thought it was pretty low, but not something to be dismissed. Since then, Putin has announced the annexation of the eastern regions of Ukraine. He has said that uh, the Russians will use all available means to defend Russian territory. And you just tweeted the other day, we're closer to the intentional use of nuclear weapons now than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. How close are we? Yeah, it's hard to put a precise figure on it. This isn't a mathematical formula. And because so much depends on the decision of one man, Vladimir Putin, who has unfettered ability to launch as many nuclear weapons as he wants, whenever he wants, for whatever reason he wants. It is very hard to predict the the, the chances. But we can say this, there have been more nuclear threats issued in the last seven months than we've seen in the entire 77 years of the nuclear age, all of them emanating from Russia. They, they're repeated. They are frequent. They just yesterday, Dmitry Medvedev made another one. So that's, it's a daily occurrence now on, in Russian official circles. And of course, it gets even worse when you go to the Russian media. And I'm not sure the percentage 
matters as much. If there's a 10% chance or a 50% chance, you still have to do the same things. You have to try to prevent this from happening in the first place and prepare your responses for, for what you will do if, if it does. This is a low probability, but extremely high consequence event. So even with that chance of, of 10%, 5%, you have to spend enormous amount of time and resources trying to prevent this catastrophe from occurring. So, Joe, just kind of big picture, let's kind of uh, talk about the um, calculations here on both sides. So why is Putin leveling these threats? How does he think that it's in his interest to do so? And then on the Western and the American side, how are they thinking about how they can do what you just said they need to do, which is to keep them from crossing that nuclear line. Yeah. He started leveling these threats at the beginning of the war. And in, at that point, it was, a, it was deterrence. He was trying to deter uh, the West from aiding Ukraine, deterring Ukraine from resisting his invasion. Didn't work. You know, now he's making the threats because he's losing the war. I don't think there's any question about that. His offensive efforts have failed repeatedly. The day he declared he was annexing large parts of, of Ukraine, the Ukrainian forces advanced and captured and liberated another major city in Ukraine. It looks clear that where, the, where this war is going, and that is in Putin's defeat. It's just a question of how long it takes. So he's trying to stem those losses. He's trying to raise the stakes here. Again, trying to prevent the West from giving Ukraine more weapons or more capable weapons. He's trying to rally forces in the global south who see this not the way we do, but it's more as a battle between two imperialist powers or two great powers, or even that the West is, as Putin says, attacking Russia. So he's playing to that audience and to supporters in the United States who who believe that the US has caused this war, that we somehow provoked Putin into going to this war. And he's trying to scare them and saying, look, look at the stakes. What do you care about, New York or Kiev? And so that's why he, he's making those those threats. There's a various ways this could play out. And I wrote this article in the Washington Post laying them out and there are various responses. I got to say right at the top, there are no good responses. Once you start down the nuclear path, it's extremely difficult to terminate it. For the same reason that a, a poker player losing a hand is hesitant to fold. They keep thinking there's one more move they could make, one more bet they could raise to try to cause the other side to fold. So there's no good responses, but you do have a large number of responses, responses a large number of tools at your disposal, diplomatic, political, economic, conventional military, before you get to the issue of whether the U.S. should answer a Russian nuclear strike with a U.S. nuclear strike. Yeah, I was actually fascinated that in your piece, and I'm not, you're an expert on nuclear doctrine and I'm not, but I was interested to see that even if the Russians attacked Ukraine with a, a large scale nuclear weapon, uh, not one of these, uh, you know, smaller, low yield uh, weapons and attacked Kiev and took out the, its leadership there, that the U.S. response uh, would be conventional. This comes from the military primarily, but also from the political leaders. And there's lots of reasons for this. You know, for one, if you start using nuclear weapons in, in land that you control or hope to control, you're creating a mess. 
that you then have to clean up. So you just, there's all kind. that's just one of the considerations here. But more importantly, the U.S. has spent decades developing very precise, extremely powerful, conventional, long-range munitions that can handle the kinds of military missions we used to assign to nuclear weapons in the 50s and 60s. We don't need to go that big to take out the kinds of targets we want to take out. And that's, and there's the bigger consideration. You do not want to further legitimize the use of nuclear weapons. The U.S. does not want to live in a world where it becomes acceptable to use nuclear weapons in a conventional war. So if Putin crosses that line, if he breaks the nuclear taboo, we haven't seen a nuclear weapon used in combat in 77 years. If he breaks that nuclear taboo, you don't want to compound the error. And so the question, you would only do that if you were forced to, and you're not forced to. So right away, if, if he did a demonstration shot, a very low yield weapon, even a 50 kiloton weapon on Ukraine, I believe that the preferred U.S. response is going to be diplomatic and economic isolation. If something like this happens, you know, China and India are running for the exits. You can see it. He's, he's not going to have an ally with him on this. There would be a complete economic embargo, for example, of Russia, coupled with conventional military strikes, long range cruise missiles, uh, bombers, even covert operations could come into play here behind enemy lines where you could take out the, the unit that launched the strike, the command headquarters that, that ordered the strike, key assets. I mean, roughly speaking, if the U.S. and NATO were to enter this war, and I believe a, a nuclear weapon could bring U.S. and NATO into this war, they could destroy the Russian forces in Ukraine in a matter of days. You know, that would be the end of the of the Russian army in this. And so Putin understands that. And so you have to convince him right now that you're willing to do that, that you have options that we're willing to execute, that his use of a nuclear weapon is not going to be the final move, that you have multiple acceptable moves to make. Just one quick follow up on that, because yeah. I think Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, told reporters that we are sending message, messages to the Russians, but in order to preserve the ambiguity, uh, the sort of strategic ambiguity needed to uh, for deterrence, he wouldn't obviously say, say what they're telling the Russians. But do you think it's a pretty good guess that one of the things that we are telling the Russians is we would do exactly that, destroy, yes. destroy the, the Russian army on the ground in, in, in Ukraine? I do think that. And, you know, we have a lot of options here. So the ones we talked about, conventional economic. There's also PSYOPs. And Mike, I can't remember if you covered during the, the 2003 Iraq war, where even before the invasion, the US was calling Iraqi generals in their home and telling them to stand down. And they did that for two reasons. One, to let them know, we know where you live. Two, we can reach out and touch you. And three, to remind them that they have a life after the war. There are things worse than losing a war. And so you can imagine that there, the, I imagine that there are these kinds of things going on right now with, with the US efforts to reach out to the, the military directly and to try to stay their hand. On the consequences that you were laying out the possible scenarios, and I should point out that the phrase Jake Sullivan, 
Biden's national security advisor has used is warning the Russians of catastrophic yes. consequences, catastrophic. But here's the thing. We've been doing that now for some time. I think it was first uh, uh, Burns made a trip to Moscow to warn the Russians of those catastrophic consequences. And presumably they have been, or as Sullivan has indicated, they have been ramped up. And yet it hasn't stopped Putin and his top people from continuing to talk about the use of nuclear weapons, even after being warned. What does that tell you? It all tells me that he's desperate and he's convinced of his own power and that the pressure on him is not enough yet. So you're absolutely right. He hasn't stopped the threats. You know, would he really do this? I think the answer to that is we don't know. Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, was just on the Sunday talk shows talking about it's about this very problem. You know, when the decision is up to one man, let's be clear about this. One man in Russia has the ability to launch hundreds, thousands of nuclear weapons, or just one, should he decide to do so. And there's no check on him short of a full-scale mutiny. So it's extremely difficult to know when you're succeeding in your efforts. I would say we are not succeeding right now. We're not succeeding enough, which is why you hear a debate in the U.S. among some military forces that uh, we have to be explicit about the nuclear threat. You noticed Jake Sullivan did not want to detail what those consequences would be. But also we have to go broader. You know, we have to let Putin hear this, not just from us, but from all of the NATO allies. And more importantly, he, sh- he should be hearing it from China, from India, from the countries that are still buying his energy resources, and, and to let them be communicating to Putin, don't go there. So you've got to try to envelop him and convince him that this isn't a winning move. Right now, I don't think we've done that. So you've been talking about all the pressure that we need to put on Putin, but you know a lot of people have been talking about this being you know maybe the biggest nuclear crisis uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And, and in that case, as you, as you well know, there was a little bit of a carrot and a, and a stick, right? Because in the end, although it wasn't known at the time. Kennedy did pull those Jupiter missiles out of Turkey. And so I guess one question I have is, do you think that part of the calculation is Putin has to save face? Maybe he's not the kind of guy who can save face. But, you know, in getting out of this kind of escalatory cycle, uh, is there any equivalent uh, to pulling the missiles out of Turkey that the Americans uh, could come up with for, for Putin? Yes, there, there are. You know, in the beginning, we were talking about off-ramps for Putin seven months ago, right. eight months ago. And, and what people largely meant then was some sort of negotiations over Ukrainian territory. I think we may be past that point. You know, it's still there. But it, it looks like Ukraine might be physically capable of pushing Russia out of the country. And that just changes the whole dynamic here. So if, if you can't offer him a face-saving territorial concession, what what can you give him? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. One is his his life, you know, his his freedom, that he's not going to get hauled before a criminal court, even an uh, international criminal court, even though he should be. Uh, the release release of sanctions. This is a big stick. I mean, he's in trouble right now domestically. He's got fissures in his regime that he's he's never seen before, and he, uh, what would greatly help him is getting the Russian economy back online. 
demobilizing the mobilization and getting people back into the workforce, you could offer him an end, the end to these, these sanctions. And you could have him imagine continuing to rule Russia or retire from Russia and be a billionaire in Sochi. I mean, there are worse things than losing a war. If he thinks primarily about himself and his future, you've got to convince him that there is one for him if he will retreat. And if he doesn't, there might not be. You know, there's another route to go. If if this is really all about one man, mm -hmm. as you were laying out, in the past, <laughs> we have uh, gone to um, pretty extreme lengths to eliminate folks. We have an executive order that's goes dates back to the I guess the Ford era that says we will not assassinate but I'm trying to you know as I mm. scratch my head thinking about possibilities here what about trying to take Putin out that, that's beyond me I mean I'm not in favor of assassinations as a tool of government policy it would be extremely difficult to do this. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it was impossible. It has huge risks associated with it. You know, the risk of failure could trigger the very events you're trying to prevent. I would think we have other options before we have to seriously consider that. You know, one of the most alarming things in your op-ed piece, which I had not noticed until I uh, until I read it or picked well, up. Well, you started it. it. You're <laughs> the one who asked me at David yeah. David's yeah, party, yeah, yeah. what are yeah. the chances uh, right. Putin will go? And I said, well, you can't really think of it that way. And then I went back home and I started thinking about, well, how do you think about it? <laughs> and I wrote it. All right. Well, I'll take I'll take some small credit. But here's the point I wanted to uh, that you made that I wanted to highlight, which is that Russian military doctrine has oh, yeah. evolved under Putin, where the use of nuclear weapons in official Russian military doctrine used to be that it would be used only if the Russian Federation's existence was threatened. It now contemplates their use in response to large-scale aggression utilizing conventional weapons in situations critical to the national security of the Russian Federation. That strikes me as a pretty big and ominous change. Right. It expands the roles and missions of nuclear weapons, and it allows their use officially under the Russian doctrine in a wide variety of circumstances. So, you know, a serious threat to the state. Well, what's the state? Is that Putin? Putin feels threatened. Does that it's just- not, It's well, now it officially the Eastern regions of Ukraine. I, I, and now, and this is, the, right. So the nuclear threats are, co are completely linked to the annexation. And I would say it's one of the motivations for the annexation. He is saying this is now Russian territory. And under Russian nuclear doctrine, they will use nuclear weapons to repel an attack on Russian territory. Now, how real is that going to be? I mean, the Ukrainians are attacking what he considers Russian territory as we speak. They are taking back more and more of what he considers now Russian territory. But this is his attempt. This is why he's doing it. This is what he's trying to do. And this has been discussed for years in, in the Russian military. And the idea is, if you are losing a conventional battle and knowing the force balance between NATO forces and, and Russia, they can be pretty sure that if there was a conventional war, between with NATO that they would lose. So in order to stem that, they say, well, we can use nuclear weapons 
to de-escalate the conflict. And they call this strategy escalate to de-escalate. We will use a nuclear weapon in a variety of ways. And I describe some of them in my article, ranging from a demonstration shot to a direct nuclear attack on a NATO country to show the West that we're serious, that the stakes for us are existential, and that they should stand down. And that's why we'd use a nuclear weapon. So we won't be starting a nuclear war. We'll be ending a conventional war. That's how their thinking goes. And that's why you have to worry about this more and more as Putin continues to lose the war in Ukraine. It's exactly in these kinds of circumstances that the use of nuclear weapons comes into play in doctrine and in Putin's thinking. The conventional wisdom, based on what I was reading from the start of this war and from the first time that he leveled any threat at all, was that it would be a demonstration shot and that it would be in some unpopulated area or over the Black Sea. And you say that is the least likely scenario beyond not doing anything at all. Why is that? The idea is, and they discuss this, this, this discuss. By the way, I should say that this escalate to de-escalate strategy, it's not termed that way. It's not officially put in Russian doctrine. The, the, this is all writings that take place in Russian journals or by Russian military or diplomatic sources. And there's some contention about this, whether it's really part of the doctrine or not. But I think most of us believe that it is. You know, the the, the U.S. military certainly believes that it is, and. The idea, and one of the things they talk about, is that you would use a demonstration shot. So you'd shoot a nuclear weapon of whatever yield, let's say 50 kilotons, so about four times the size of the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima, and you, you, you would explode it over an uninhabited area, say the Black Sea, or a relatively uninhabited area in the landmass of Ukraine. And that would be a tremendous shock. We haven't seen a nuclear weapon exploded in combat in 77 years. No one in the world has seen an above ground nuclear explosion since 1980, the last time there was an atmospheric nuclear test, in that case by China. So the world would stop. If there was a nuclear explosion in the world, everybody would stop immediately. You would get their attention. This would be an extremely grave moment, right? And the question is, in fact, is for that reason that some of the scientists in the Manhattan Project in 1945 recommended to Truman that he not bomb a Japanese city with the atomic bomb, but to do a demonstration shot. The problem is that as shocking as it is, it might not be shocking enough. And so Putin might will likely reject that for the same reason the US military rejected it. No, they want to show you on the ground what these weapons do. That's the shock we need. So that's why I think a demonstration shot is unlikely and more likely is what you referring to, Dan, a so-called low yield, something that's Hiroshima size or smaller, which is considered small by nuclear standards these days, but it's still an enormously powerful explosion. Let's say 10,000 tons of TNT. That's, you know, that's about 20,000 of our normal conventional bombs would explode on a military target, a port, an airfield. You would have hundreds, thousands killed by this, but it would be local. It wouldn't be like some people think of it. It wouldn't be the start of a nuclear war necessarily. It would be fairly limited. If it was took place in a, a city in, in eastern Ukraine, you wouldn't even feel it in Kyiv let alone Warsaw or, or Paris. You wouldn't know that it had happened except for the report. So it's, but it would be an enormous explosion and that would be the kind of shock that Putin's pr probably going for. And th that would trigger a massive US response 
up to and including the way I understand the military is thinking about this, uh, bringing U U.S. and NATO conventional forces into play. So it would be serious, serious enough for us to respond that way. We would the whole name of the game here is escalation control. You're trying with your move to stop the game, to try to force Putin to back down. Whether that would happen or not, I got to tell you, the experience with war games isn't that encouraging. Most war games that start with exactly this kind of scenario end up escalating to a global thermonuclear war. You know, there are other ways that Putin can threaten the West. And if there's one consistency to Putin over the years, I mean, he does things that nobody else expects he will do. You know, he you yeah. know, brazenly assassinates defectors and dissidents. Um, he invades countries. You know, he interferes in our election. We just had last week uh, the news about the sabotage, apparent sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipeline. Is that if it was the Russians, and we don't know it for sure, that does suggest he's prepared to do some pretty drastic things, even separate and apart from the use of nuclear weapons here. Yes. I, I, and the Nord Stream, you know, Russia is the only player, the only actor here with both the means and the motive to do an act like that. So that's why most of us believe that that's, Russia is behind it. You know, he's continually made energy threats and taken energy actions, weaponizing energy as a, in this war. Um, I would expect him to continue to do so. You saw also the, the abrupt cutoff of gas supplies to Italy last week. So I would expect more of that. You know, he's waging war on all fronts. I would expect more cyber operations. Uh, I, I would, of course, ramp up of propaganda operations, trying to weaken the West, trying to sow divisions in the West. Are there other, thing, other crises he might be able to generate to distract attention? You know, I think he would like it if China would be more actively on his side, but China's keeping its distance, you know, playing a very, you know, they abstained from the resolution at the UN last week condemning the Russian annexation of parts of Ukraine, abstained. You know, didn't vote against. <laughs> Same with India. So he's room for maneuver is, is pretty tight at this point. So while your point is well taken, I'm just not sure how many other options he has left. Joe, let me just ask a, a practical question. What would be the sort of telltale signs that uh, U.S. intelligence would be looking for to know whether the Russians are preparing to use a nuclear weapon? And just one quick follow up to that is, how long would it take for them to actually execute? Is this something they could do very quickly or would it take some time? U.S. officials are continually reminding us that they see no change in U Russian nuclear forces. So it's not like, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we went to DEFCON 3, we went to DEFCON 2, we Russians did something similar. You saw things in motion. You saw things. DEFCON 2, which is where we were with the Cuban Missile Crisis, is that war is imminent. Prepare to go. Right. So we don't have anything like that. And there's no sign that there's been any change whatsoever in the alert levels or the movement of Russian forces. So here's the uh, nuclear forces. So, for example, nuclear weapons are not in Ukraine. There are no nuclear weapons in Ukraine. There aren't even any right on the border. You have to go. I don't know. Maybe it's 500. I should. I, you have to go pretty far back into Russia before but you get these, to a storage if, plot. If, if these low yield weapons, could, yeah. some of them could fit on a on an artillery 
Oh, uh, uh, an, an Iskander cruise yeah. missile. That's probably the weapon of choice. That's, You've okay. seen them used in the war. These are ground-launched cruise missiles. Pretty good, pretty accurate. There are configurations for them that include a, a nuclear weapon, a nuclear warhead on them, a so-called dial a yield, where you can, before you launch it, you can decide this is going to be a 10 kiloton blast or a 110 kiloton blast. It depends on how you configure the warhead and you can do that relatively easily. But those are not in Ukraine. You'd have to see them moved from storage. Uh, one of the benefits of the 1990s was that we cooperated with the Russians to reducing sto securely store their nuclear weapons, including moving them back from forward deployments into these central storage areas. So we've seen no evidence that there, anything like that is happening. We would probably detect that. You couldn't say, I, I don't know what the confidence level is, but it's pretty high. You would see them start to mate a warhead to a delivery system or move a sub into position or move a nuclear armed cruise missile on a ship in the Black Sea, you would see that. We have exquisite intelligence, both uh, out from outside and also from inside, as some of the intelligence revealed about the preparations for the war. We have sources inside Russia that are giving us information. You would pretty much know this. At that point, all the alarm bells would be going off. The U.S. wouldn't keep that information secret. Right, because the whole name of the game is try to stop him from doing it. So I, I feel pretty confident that that you, you'd see red lights flashing all through NATO. Let me uh, take you back to um, the conversation you were having earlier with Dan about you know possible off ramps for Putin or concessions uh, that could be uh, given him. Now you were at the start of the war affiliated with a Washington think, think tank, the Quincy Institute, which you resigned from because yeah. it was advocating some sort of diplomatic solution to the Ukraine crisis. Given where we are today and, you know, this, you know, very real threat of nuclear war, looking back on it, were there diplomatic off ramps we could have been exploring earlier on that might have prevented us from getting to where we are right now? Let me just clarify that statement. I didn't okay. resign because they were advocating diplomacy. That's what they say. I resigned because they were severely underestimating the threat that we faced from Putin's invasion and from Putinism itself. I consider Putin a fascist. I think he has built a fascist regime in Russia. We have never seen a fascist regime with nuclear weapons before. We've had authoritarians, we've had some brutal dictators, but nothing on this scale before. So this is Da very dangerous territory. And I objected because the Quincy Institute and the so-called realist school of international theory tend to, were blaming the U.S. for the war. They were going back to our policies of the 90s and the early 2000s and saying it was NATO expansion that provoked Putin. Just last week, uh, Stephen Walt wrote a piece in Foreign Policy saying that this was a preventive war that Putin was forced to do it. That is fundamentally misreading the situation, fundamentally misidentifying the main threat here and continuing to blame the US. And so that's why I left, that you have to understand that there were things worse than American military policy in the world. But that said- um, So were there diplomatic you know, off-ramps then? Were there diplomatic off-ramps that we could have been talking about? I think Russians it was reasonable to on. talk about that. And, and I was one of the ones talking about that. And I think many people 
talked about territorial concessions. Mike McFall wrote an op-ed in, in April in New York Times talking about how there's going to have to be some territorial concessions, you know, et cetera. A lot of people were. But I don't think we truly understood Putin's objectives at that point. It's become absolutely clear that he completely intended to occupy Ukraine. There was no compromise with that kind of agenda. And he continued that goal for, for a, a good month until he lost the Battle of Kiev and was forced to retreat. But even then, you see what he wants to do. He wants to annex territory. This annexation, this illegal annexation, is the biggest land grab since World War II in Europe. Yeah, well, Nothing you know, he, like did, he did that in 2014 with Crimea, which, he by did. the way, was supported by, the, you know, the Russian people by and large. And in fact, across the political spectrum, even his opponent in the last election supported the annexation of Crimea. I, I understand. So, so, you, so you'd have to look. Is there a compromise here? I don't see one right now. I think the, unless there's a complete defeat of the enemy. We like to think America wins wars like we won the war in Japan, where they come on the battleship Missouri and sign an unconditional surrender. But most wars don't end that way. They're end in negotiations. So you can assume that this, there's got to be a negotiation to end this war. That negotiation is not now. The road to the peace table leads through the battlefield. He has to be militarily defeated before he will be willing to negotiate a, that a, a peace plan. That assumes that a military defeat will in cause Ukraine. him in Ukraine will cause him to throw in the towel and basically expose all his threats to be about nuclear war and using all available means to defend Russian territory to have been completely hollow. It's hard to see how he survives under such a scenario. In recent Russian, well, I shouldn't say recent, in Russian history, including the Soviet Union, military defeats of this magnitude have often been accompanied by regime change. Ask Tsar Alexander, you know, for example. So yes, that's a very real threat. So that's part of the off-ramp. Can you soften the blow a bit? And ironically, part of the thing that might soften the blow is Putin's control of the mass media and the information space in Russia. Timothy Snyder has a very interesting piece in Foreign Affairs, which I recommend to everyone talking about what's at stake in Ukraine. And one of the things he says is that there's that Putin makes people believe contradictory things over and over again. You know, Ukraine is the center of the world. No, no, no. Now it's Syria. Syria is the center of the world. No, no. Now we're back to Ukraine. You know, this is central. He, and he points out that he, Putin could just change the lie instead of the lie being that we're in invaded Ukraine to denazify it and that the West is attacking us, you could spin a peace settlement, a retreat as a victory of some kind and just have the Russian people try to accept this new lie. He may be going a little far with that, but that's don't underestimate Putin's control of the of the society. It's so hard to predict, but one thing we can predict is there's no chance of Putin stopping now. He's not going to come and negotiate a genuine peace now. He's got to suffer further losses. Interestingly enough, I think he will. I think, you know, people have talked about this as being a frozen conflict. This does not look like a frozen conflict to me. This does not look like we're settling in for years of warfare in Ukraine. This looks like we're, we're closer to seeing the possible collapse of the Russian army than we are to it, battle lines being entrenched and no progress on either side. So things are going to develop, I think, very rapidly this winter.
Do you think that the closer the Ukraine and the West comes to a total defeat of Putin, the better chance for a political, diplomatic, economic response will work? Or, I mean, it seems like it could go either way. I think that's exactly right. This is, we're in like, a, as I say, in particle physics, we're in a super positioning of states. Putin is alive and dead at the same time. As you get closer to the military defeat, you face the possibility of a complete collapse of Putinism. You also increase the chances that there could be a diplomatic settlement that could give him some kind of face-saving way out. I will point out a small historical footnote. Um, Tsar Alexander II lost the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, but it took 12 years <laughs> before he was overthrown. So um, well, I, I was the consequences don't one, come but... as immediately <laughs> as, as we might like. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, anyway, Joe, I see why people don't especially enjoy talking to you about your <laughs> uh, field of expertise, but it is an important one. And but never they should more, talk to you. Well, but let me just should. say, you guys are on a roll here because I listened to your podcast with, with Peter <laughs> Baker and Susan Glasser yesterday, and it was outstanding on this subject. They came on to talk about Trump, but you couldn't get to that before talking about Putin and the war. And for those, I, I urge the, your listeners to to listen to that. We'll finish listening to this first, but then go back <laughs> to the previous episode and hear that discussion because it was just outstanding. Well, it is, it is, you know, the most, you know, pressing question for all of us at the moment. So I want to thank you. And um, uh, I hope we don't have to have you back too soon. <laughs> but if things do go south, you can count on it. Uh, you'll be our go-to guy. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Joe.